Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Spazito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. From chefs to owners, mixologists to bar managers, you name it, we want to provide you guys with a ton of value, anything hospitality related. Welcome to another episode of Whisking It All. We're here today with Joey and Orlando Napolitano from Brotelli Pasta Bar. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Angelo, for bringing us on the air. Of course. Full disclosure, I actually know Join Orlando quite well, and I got the idea of having them on the show because of their experience in the industry. And I think it'd be really interesting for this episode to shed some light on someone who's still in the juice. I'll let you guys speak a little bit about Brotelli, but as a quick background, they've been in the business for two years. And I think sometimes having that fresh pair of eyes will resonate with our audience who are thinking about getting into the industry. So why don't we start off maybe by just getting a little background of what is Brotelli Pasta Bar? So Brotelli Pasta Bar essentially is a quick service pasta bar concept. So the name Brotelli comes from the word brothers and the Italian word for brothers, Fratelli. And we're situated in Montreal, downtown in the CABC Tower. So going back, like how we got the idea was my brother and I were working in banking and we go for lunch with colleagues and we noticed that no one ever had the pasta option. And yet it's one of the foods that's most commonly eaten around the world, but yet no one was having it for lunch in a quick service setting, primarily because the pasta that was available was pre-made in a big like, cafeteria tray under a dry heat lamp. And it didn't really look appetizing, didn't have a lot of flavor. So of course people weren't attracted to it. So we did our research on quick service pasta and we saw that this concept was very popular in Europe uh, and Northern Italy and France studied it and we decided to open it in Montreal because there wasn't really a pasta option. I love it. It's really true, actually, because when I think about it, when I used to go to food courts and, and you have your standard options and there'd always be maybe one option that had pizza and pasta. But like you said, it wasn't the most appetizing, to say the least. Love the concept. I wanted to maybe take a step back and get into the how. It's always fascinating to me to understand how people get into the hospitality industry. I'd love to hear from both of you or either of you how you first got into this business. Okay. My brother and myself, we grew up in a family that ran an Italian restaurant. So our grandfather, he started a restaurant called Casa Napoli back in 1979. My father grew up in there. And so we were always involved, maybe not on a day-to-day, -day, but whenever it was a big event, my father needed an extra pair of hands. We were there to help out. And it's funny to say that my father was always the type of guy that discouraged us from getting into this industry as much as possible. So he was always like, go to school, become a lawyer, become an accountant, do your education. So we really took out that path. And our dad was a pretty uh, strong fellow, so we listened to him. And I think he was just basing it a lot on his experiences. In his era, a restaurateur didn't have a POS system, didn't have an inventory management system. So for him, you're a slave to your establishment. You got to open the door, you got to close the door every night. And for me and my brother, we got into pursuing our studies, working in the banking industry, working in the finance industry. We realized that just seeing some of the big restaurant groups, that this could become more of a corporate type of direction, not necessarily what our father was saying. Another point is growing up, me and my brother were always surrounded by entrepreneurs. Everyone that was at the family table was either 
an electrician. If he was a lawyer, he owned his own law firm. So like growing up, me and my brother, like, we're going to be an entrepreneur one day. We're going to open up our own business. We just never knew what. But when we saw that opportunity, like Joey mentioned, we're like, you know what? Let's do it. We took a a 10-day blitz trip in Italy, mostly in the north, in the middle of Italy. Studied it and came back and said, you know what? Let's, Let's do this. And we did. That's amazing. It's funny how sometimes you can't escape fate, right? Like you push away from the hospitality space or the restaurant industry in banking and then ended up right back in it. But I like how you mentioned bringing that different spin to it. I think a lot of people sometimes have the dream of opening up their own spot, whether it's a coffee shop, a restaurant, a bar, you name it. And so I'd love to hear from your perspective, how did you go from being in a banking industry, a corporate job, I'm sure it was a comfortable job, so to speak. How did you go from that to saying, what effort diving into the restaurant space, which is not an easy space? I know, I think my brother touched on it. We always had that entrepreneurial itch. We always wanted to create something and work on it and see it flourish. That in its own gives you satisfaction. But you know, it's not for everyone, for sure, because when you're building something from scratch, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And it's how you face those downs that is going to bring you back up again. And like the shift from being a banker to being a restaurant owner, a banker, it's very bureaucratic. Your days are very routine and usually you have one task or very few tasks, but you have to do it well and you have to do it repetitively and keep on doing it to hit your, your targets, to hit your, your quotas. When we opened Bertelli, you had to wear different hats. One day you're chef, at night you're web developer. So it's just be able to adapt and be able to to face different challenges head on. And luckily for me, we were two. So we always had the opportunity to feed off each other's ideas, to question others' motives, which I think just helped Bertelli, especially during this past year, which is the COVID year has been very difficult. We're still hanging on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think having the banking and financial backing actually helped us because it helped us build a business plan. It helped us structure the business, even though it's a startup and it's one location, everything is very structured. So that background, we've just carried it forward into a, a restaurant environment. And I really just think anybody could do anything in life. You just have to be willing to just take the punches and keep moving forward. And I think anyone in the restaurant industry took one hell of a punch this year. We get out of it and uh, we move forward in uh, mid-2021. Yeah, I I hear you. It was funny, the analogy that I gave a a friend, we're just talking about how Quebec has been handling the pandemic, specifically how they've been forgetting, in a sense, about the hospitality industry. And a lot of people were saying, yeah, at least we're getting some help from the government. And the analogy I gave was, if someone beat you up and you're on the floor and then you were thankful because they gave you a Band-Aid and some rubbing alcohol, it's like, I appreciate it. It's better than nothing. It's tough when you're taking one hell of a beating to be grateful for a little bit of help when you're literally choking, right? We deal with hundreds and hundreds of restaurants and we see it. Like most restaurants, they don't have cash flow for months to come. Most restaurants are operating maybe one, two, if you're really efficient, maybe three months out. So it's a very tough industry with tight margins and mishandling it from a government perspective can really crush uh, a business. But I want to get a little more practical right now. And because it's so fresh in your minds, I'd love to maybe share with our listeners the journey you went through. So why don't we jump a little into how did it go from idea, right? You guys are both working in the banking industry, 
this concept comes up, you got this idea. Walk us through the actual steps. What did you do from idea phase, coming up with the name to basically day one? I'd love to hear that process because it's somewhat fresh in your mind. The first thing was you were doing multiple tasks at the same time. So our box manufacturers, he's based in, in Italy. So we had to speak with him, see how many boxes we would need to order as a minimum. And the magic number was 35,000. And there was the recipe part. So we did a lot of R&D, like what are we going to launch with? And during the R&D process, it really was, if it doesn't pass, Joey and my taste, are, if we don't like it, then it doesn't go on the menu. Right. And I want to stop you just there for a second, just because when when Joey and Orlando talk about their taste palette, I, I can attest to this. So as I mentioned, we're good friends and I've been to their house several times. And it's really true because they grew up in an environment where their dad was a chef and the mom was, let's say, unofficially a chef, but pretty much still an amazing cook. And so you grew up in an Italian household where you're always eating well. And I mean, always like I've been at their house on holidays and obviously that was five course meal and unbelievable. So quick shout out to Gennaro and Emilia. But that aside, what was amazing was even on a regular basis, if it was middle of the week, a Wednesday or Thursday, I'd, I'd be at their house and the food was unreal. And so I think growing up in an environment where in a sense you're spoiled, but because of the caliber of the food, you do have a certain threshold. And it's great to see that's been reflected in the actual products at Brotelli. And then I would say another part was location. Me and Joy really went on it ourselves, trying to find a location. And we thought about a food court, right? So we were studying the path in Toronto and we're like, it would be cool to be in a food court setting to start off. Our mindset was you're going to get at least a minimum clientele that's going to reach out to you as a new brand in the city. And from that, there was the construction, which me and Joy knew absolutely nothing about. I could tell you some stories later on. I don't know if you want to know when the challenges at that point, but some funny stories of what happened over there. Yeah, I think it's always helpful to learn about people's journey. And I've said this before, but it's great to learn with your own mistakes, but sometimes it's also great to learn from other people's mistakes. And so for our listeners in the early days, you started, what are maybe some mistakes or fumbles you made along the way that you can share with our listeners. You mentioned coming up with the name to ordering, setting things up with suppliers to construction. I think in terms of the early mistakes, we both were educated. We both went to uh, university, but they don't really teach you how to read a construction plan. They don't teach you the ins and outs of plumbing, electrical work. When the landlord sends you landlord's work and you're reading the voltage and the amps of your huts, and you don't know what you're reading because is this sufficient for my needs? You don't know what your needs are. You're just boiling water. Yeah. So I think that in itself was a learning curve. I think we're better prepared going forward than what we were before. Mm -hmm. That being said, you no, know, we still have much to learn because we, we really know for one tower, maybe it's different right. for any location you go to. So I think that was the biggest hurdle going up and the biggest eye opener was really the construction limbo and negotiating landlord's work when you really didn't have that experience before. And it's not something that you're taught in school. So we right. didn't know where to get that experience from. And you only know once you do it. I have right. a funny story over there. So when we got our construction quotes, like we signed our lease. Now it's time for our fixturing period. It's going to start on this specific date. So we got to get all our quotes out. So here I am, construction holidays. I'm on vacation, right, with my wife. And I'm just opening up my laptop. And I'm like, I'm going to get some quotes from certain contractors. And I get the price. And my heart. It's about to fall. And my wife's calling me like, hey, Orlando, you ready? We're going to go out. I'm like, leave me alone right now at this computer screen. And I'm thinking to myself, Rotelli Pasta Bar is dead before it even started. 
I was just like staring at the figures and contemplating to myself while I'm walking down the streets on this quote unquote vacation. <laughs> Stressful like, vacation. <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, like, we're dead. It's over. But luckily, uh, we got back and they showed it to Joey and we just look at each other. Oh, we're still going to do this. So we were able to go back to the bank, plead with RBC, trust us. We're not going to screw this up. You got to give us more money. And luckily, it pulled through and we had a great banker by the name of Michael Bahu who really threw a Hail Mary and caught it. And here we are today. That's amazing. I, I would imagine in general in construction, but I'm curious with your case, was it somewhat on budget? Or was there a lot of surprises like, oh, we didn't see this coming? Or was there a lot of mistakes and added costs that were unforeseen? I think the biggest unforeseen cost was the ventilation because the ventilation needs to be a specific type. Because you're in such a big tower, they have standards that they have to follow and needs to connect with their fire code. So if there's a fire in the 38th floor, it's going to shut down your ventilation. So there needs to be a two-way flow communication and that was the biggest surprise because of, of that cost. And that was the reason why we needed to go back to the bank. But these are lessons that we learned and we were able to overcome in, in that first year. But like I said, every spot's going to be different. Every spot's going to have their own construction challenges. Even talking to other people in the industry, it's not always a cookie cutter formula. It depends on the status of the building and what the landlord is going to put into it. I speak to guys that have 12, 15 restaurants and they tell me that they're still learning. So yeah, I think Joey nails it there. That there's no, it's not a copy paste. Maybe your equipment and your layout of your store is, but not when it comes to the build out. There'll definitely be lessons that you learn and apply as you go, but there'll always be new lessons that'll come up. And like one of the things I wanted to touch on real quick was the standard you guys have when it comes to quality of food. So I wanted to take a minute or two and really showcase your menu. So just to chat a bit about your popular items, just to give our guests an idea of the type of dishes they can expect from Rotelli Pasta Bar. Yeah, we think in terms of pasta, I think we have a wide variety of menu options for people that like the creamy stuff, pesto based, and even tomato sauce, but with a twist. I think one of our dishes was even inspired from my dad's restaurant, and we even named the dish after my dad's restaurant. So it's if you go to our menu, you'll see Casanapoli. And it's really a dish that was very popular with clients because they're like, oh my God, a dish that has dried figs, sun-dried tomatoes, golden raisins, dark raisins, cherry tomatoes, all infused in your sauteing in a nice tomato sauce with grand padano parmesan cheese. So the quality of our ingredients is really emphasized in the pasta box. And that's one very popular dish. I think the one that's our best seller is our carbonara with egg yolk, grilled all Italian pancetta. We do have a, a, a wide variety of, of pasta boxes that will accommodate any taste palette. Amazing. And I, I guess at this point, because of what's going on, I'm assuming you guys are, are doing a lot more takeout than normal. So I'd love to hear about how you guys have adapted. And I know in general, it's so hard, but during this climate, like what kind of things have you guys done to try to, to help people out there if there's anything that's worked or not worked? Yeah, when COVID first struck, the first wave, nobody knew what this virus was. So we shut down the operations. It was March 26, 2020. And during that month, me and my brother were just talking to each other probably like 10 times a day. And like, are we going to even get through this? Is it even possible? So what we decided then was like, you know what, we're shut, but we still got to pay rent. We still got to try to survive. So we came up with an online ordering platform delivery. So it's all frozen plaques of pasta, either family portion or individually packed. Sauces that also pre-packaged, like Joy was talking about, we package it and we deliver it. And what it is essentially is you go onto our website, you select what you want and 
within 24 to 48 hours, we'll deliver it to you. And it's just for the residents on the island of Montreal. So that was our first step that we did during the COVID crisis just to get through. And luckily, Montreal supported us and we were able to generate some sales through that. And then we opened up back to store. It was end of June and we're operating on COVID hours. So it's really just from 8.30 till 3.30. And we're on all the platforms like Uber Eats, uh, DoorDash, Ritual, and it's slow. But I do see that there's, there's a difference between the first wave and the second wave. I think in the first wave, people were really afraid to order takeout. And that's why we saw a lot of people cooking from home and baking bread. And the second wave, I, I see that people are become a lot more comfortable, not with the virus itself, but with dealing and going on your day to day and having having that virus as a shot over your head. But I think people are a lot more comfortable with takeout, which is no, a good thing for the restaurants. No, so. it's funny you mentioned that because I think even myself, the first wave, every time I had groceries came into the house, I'm there washing the groceries, disinfecting, washing everything. And then news kind of came out where you don't really need to wash it anymore. And looking back, because we didn't know anything about the first wave, it was a lot you know, scarier. But you're right. There is some comfort in the second wave where, okay, at least there's some stats in terms of survival rate and in terms of what to watch out for and how to be careful. So that definitely helps in terms of people's perception. One of the things that I always like doing as an exercise, even for myself, is I always think about what advice would I give to myself today to past Angelo. So I'd love to hear from your point of view, and, and we can go uh, one by one, maybe advice present Orlando and Joey would give to two year ago, Joey in Orlando. You want to take the question first? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. The advice that I would guess I would give my, myself was two years ago was you just got to expect the unexpected and just be willing to adapt on the fly. Not just when we first opened, we expected a certain number of, of traffic and we realized, oh, we're in a standalone tower. It doesn't really connect to the underground city of Montreal. So the traffic flow wasn't what we've anticipated. So we needed to really adapt how we're gonna cope with this. And we literally focus on corporate catering and we went door to door to all the offices, pretty much in all major towers downtown and to get to get clients. And then the word of mouth grew as the year went on and our corporate catering became like 30, 35% of our business. And if we weren't able to adapt and to realize and willing to do this in order to keep our heads above water, we wouldn't even be here. So I would say always be willing to adapt, always be willing to see potential and keep the door always open. So that makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. And Orlando, what about you? What would you tell two year younger Orlando? Stay at the bank. COVID is <laughs> Fair enough. I didn't have COVID in my projections. That's for sure. Right. You know? Yeah, I don't think anyone did. So I hear you. No, but I think Joey just nailed it over there. I think he summed it up. Be open, be ready for the unexpected, be willing to take in the punches and keep chipping away. I'm a strong believer that if you just keep chipping away, you don't give up. The tide's going to turn at one point. So you just got to keep chipping away. Yeah, 100%. I, th I think, and, and this is not only for the restaurant space, I think as a whole, just entrepreneurs in general, that's one of the qualities of an entrepreneur is being able to adapt quickly. I've seen it, for me, I've seen it a lot in the tech scene where you're adapting left and right. Even for us personally, right? Yes, we're in software, but our software at Whisk is literally for the restaurant and bar space. If you look at our financials, it's been pretty much mirrored to what's going on in the industry. So every time there's a lockdown, follow the curve, so to speak. It's definitely how do you adapt. And for us, we've been lucky that because we can theoretically sell anywhere, we've had a chance, okay, maybe focus on areas or geographies that are open. So that, that's been a relief that we can focus on Texas or Florida, where sometimes with a physical location, you have 
certain limitations. I'd love to get into maybe what do you guys see in the future? I know it's it's a hard question to ask now because you know we're in the middle of a second lockdown here in Montreal. So it is a tough question. As entrepreneurs, usually you're a visionary in some respect. And so where do you guys see the future of Brotelli? So what do you guys see coming in the next maybe year, two years, three years? So we had to make a decision like throughout this year, my brother really had a heart-to-heart talk. And do we fight through this or do we, do we pull the plug? And we're, we pretty much said that if we're going to fight through this, it's because we're going to keep growing. And maybe we don't have the same ambitions of what we previously had, but we got to keep moving forward. So right now, I'd say our short-term goal, and we do believe it's a very achievable goal, is in 2021 to open up a second Brotelli Pasta Bar in Montreal. So we're looking for something street front, and we have a broker that we mandated the assignment with to present this location. So we're hoping by end of summer, early fall, Brotelli Pasta Bar 2 is up and running. So that's a realistic short-term goal. And then from there, it's then we're going to go back to the ambitious goal. So then after from there, we're hoping COVID is gone. We're hoping the momentum is going to be full steam ahead. And we think this industry, once it's fully open, it's going to just explode. People are going to go back to seeing shows. People are going to go back to sporting events. University kids are going to be back at school. So uh, we do see like a wave and I think there'll be a big momentum towards the industry. So we're hoping to open many stores at that point. And I think that since we started, we always said one day, we think this is a concept that would work well. Also, the long-term dream is to even expand to the United States. That'd be amazing. And I think one thing that's really cool about your concept is that it's very efficient in a sense, right? It's it, the way you guys built it and you don't have to give away your secrets here, but maybe you could just touch on how, the importance of having an easy process for scalability when things you've implemented on that end. I think that's what made our concept so appealing to us was that the quick service industry is not having to pay one executive chef a high salary. And literally you could teach anyone to cook the food and to cook it well and at the standard that, that you want. So everything we do is standardized, even though we only have one location, like my brother said, we do have other goals and everything that we do, if it doesn't make sense to do this, and if it doesn't work with three, four, five, ten 10 stores, then we're not going to do it in one store. So that's the, the logic behind everything. So even our past, it's pre-portioned, the boiler has set cooking times. So every pasta we already did a lot of R&D, okay, spaghetti is going to cook for 30 seconds. This is going to cook for a minute and a half. So everything is very standardized and it's very teachable to anyone who's willing to learn. We have students that are cooking for 150 people and obviously they were supervised, but it's very standardized and very easy to, to apply and to replicate. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the time you guys put into that process of making it repeatable is going to make it ultimately scalable when you open up two, three restaurants. And I'm sure you'll learn other things as we discussed, but standardizing the menu is definitely a good start. Yeah. And just to add, talking to one executive of Starbucks and she was saying quality is always going to be very important, but it's just as important as efficiency is right. to be able to, to service your customer at a timely manner without compromising quality. I think that's just the key you know, for quick service for restaurants because they're not going there for the same experience of fine dining. It's a totally different experience, but it doesn't mean they don't want to eat well, but right. just they want to eat well and get out. No, it makes sense. You value the time a little more. At a fine dining, you can sit down for two hours, no problem. But with quick service, it's, it's that. You want quick service. And how do you balance that quick service 
with quality. Because on the flip side, I don't think people would be too happy if it was extra quick, but the food was not great exactly. either. So it's that fine line, which makes a ton of sense. And we talked about where he's heading and where you guys see Rotelli going in the next year, two years and in the near future. I'd love to get your perspectives. You guys are in the industry. You guys are living it. Where do you see the QSR space in general heading? And do you think there's any habits that kind of were learned during the pandemic that will stick? When I say habit, like example, a lot of people that didn't do online orders now do online orders. So do you think any habits that kind of picked up during the pandemic will stick? And where do you see from your perspective, the QSR industry heading? I think QSR is all about convenience. So if people are home, the convenience is how do you bring the food to me home? Uh, But I don't see people working home forever because I think most people like to, to interact. There just maybe won't be that same traffic flow when it comes to an office environment as there was pre-COVID. So I think it's, it's managing a balance between both. You'll have the physical presence of the client coming to your store, and then you'll have all the platforms, the Uber Eats, and the word actually are actually going to probably pick up momentum because if people are home and they're working and they're doing meetings, they don't have the time to cook themselves lunch, but they're still going to want to eat something good and move on with their day. So I see that part of the business, whereas before, maybe it was 10% of your business, all the platforms, maybe that's going to increase over time. And other than that, it's just more of a digital. I think before COVID, there was already some companies in San Francisco where the whole front was all like screens. I forget the name of the company, but it was really like you walk into the store, you were just tapping screens and you just had a kitchen staff. So are we going to get there within five years? I don't see that for everyone, but you know, maybe really long term, I, I could see more of a digital president hit QSR. And yeah, uh, yeah. I I don't know. Joey, any insight? Yeah, I think automation, and I'll touch on it. We saw the pizza was being made by a robot. Maybe that was going to be 10, 15 years out. With COVID, it's going to accelerate it and it's going to be much sooner than we anticipate. So I feel like the world was always heading to a self-automated way, less human reliant. But I feel like with COVID, I think this is true, not only in QSR, but I think in all industries that we're going to be more dependent on artificial intelligence in our day-to-day lives, employers getting these machines instead of staffing because staffing won't call in sick, doesn't have to worry about a kid. You don't have these headaches with a robot. I'm sure there'll be other ones like not working or malfunctioning, but but I think COVID may accelerate that movement much sooner than we thought. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I see it in that same light where it was heading in the direction, but maybe what would have taken, let's say, 10 years is now going to take five years because people you know, have adapted so much quicker out of you know, necessity. And I think it's accelerated adopting technology. Okay, I love it. So one of the ways we love to end off this podcast is something called Last Day on Earth. Really simple. If it was your last day on earth, what would be your go-to meal and your go-to drink? Okay, so last day on earth, go-to meal. It's hard because I have so many. But I guess I would have to go with uh, my birthday meal. My mom makes the same thing for me every birthday, and that's uh, brachot. Brachot, where anyone doesn't know what it is, it's like beef fillets that's rolled up and stuffed with parsley, parmesan, pine nuts, raisins, and it's slowly cooked in a tomato sauce. So it becomes like a ragu meat sauce and you have it with pasta. I love that. It's always been one of my favorite. You guys know I'm a pasta guy. So definitely <laughs> the last meal needs to have pasta in it. And if I had to go with the last drink, I've always been a vodka martini guy. I'm going to stick with that. Angelo knows it. It was our go-to <laughs> drink going out. Yeah. That's my one-two combo. Awesome. What about you, Orlando? 
I'm going to join the party of the vodka martini. <laughs> martini is going around. Let's make it three. I'll go with a nice vodka martini over there. And uh, yeah, I'm a pretty simple guy. I like seafood. So a nice spaghetti with clams, with white wine, parsley, garlic, saute that in there. Take a nice vodka to head on up. Spaghetti pasta, I'm a, I'm a happy trooper. I love having you guys on the show. I think it brings a fresh perspective of people who are still in the juice two years in. I think you guys crushed your first year. Second year is obviously tough with COVID, but that's across the board. But as new restaurateurs, so to speak, I think you guys have achieved a lot. And so any closing words to people listening who are thinking about getting into the space or new to the space? Yeah, I would just say do your market research before what your concept is, study it thoroughly, make sure their product is good and make sure there's demand for, for whatever you're, you're cooking up. And also one advice that I realize in terms of marketing, especially as a startup, your funds are limited. So for sure you need a social media presence, you need your Instagram, you need your Facebook. And when it comes to paying for ads for that, your budgets are not as high as other companies. So just people are getting bombarded by Instagram ads all the time. So your ad gets lost and it's, it's not seen. So the effect is not there. So what we did is we did ads within our, our communities. So for example, we sponsor McGill events where students would do case competitions and we would be one of the restaurant sponsors there. And that drive a lot of business, even though it's outside the box, it's not your typical Instagram, social media platform, that helps a lot. So really focus on communities, especially when you're starting off, word of mouth, and that's gonna do a world of difference when you're just you know getting your feet wet. That would be my advice. And Orlando, yeah. any closing advice from you? Yeah, for me, you know what? If you guys, if whoever's out there listening and wants to jump into the space, it's if you believe in your concept and you really feel it in your gut that this could work, and you're gonna have a lot of people before you even start, they're gonna tell you, uh, it doesn't make sense. Who wants to eat pasta from a box? You know, we used to get all the time, you and my brother. So it's, I think if you believe in it and you're willing to put the time and effort to make it happen, just go for it. Love it. Guys, it was great having both of you on the show. I think we are due in the near future for a vodka martini. But I really appreciate you guys having Absolutely. here and sharing those words with, with our listeners. Thanks, Thank Angelo. Thanks, Angelo. Cheers, great host. Cheers. All right. Cheers, guys. <laughs>